Over the past few months, I've come to realise that to be successful in the new purpose and vision arena, not only do you have to have diversity at the core of the organisation, but you need to have a diverse range of personal skills to manage it. Shirley Chowdhury is the epitome of that approach, a woman who's passionate about Indigenous education, law, financial services, funds management, journalism and the NFP sector. Her wisdom and influence is plain to see in this interview. My thanks to Simon Goff from Purpose, who in our podcast last time around recommended Shirley, a woman who recently was selected as one of the AFR's 100 Women of Influence. Inevitably, we started by talking about great leadership. I'm James Lush, and this is Purpose and Vision. You're listening to Purpose and Vision, the podcast that digs deep into why and how companies are making a greater impact in our world by focusing on profit and purpose. This is the podcast that tells the stories and inspires us all to think differently about business today. I think it comes from modelling certain behaviours and people seeing what you do. I I hope, uh, and I know from hearing what people have said, that things I've done and things I've said, roles I've taken, have influenced people in certain ways. I know the last role I had um, supported so many um, Indigenous students, and I'm really proud of that. I just don't think we consciously go out Mm. looking for that in the roles we pick. Uh, Do you... That's a very interesting observation. It's modelling of behaviour. So your behaviour has been what has rubbed off on others. You don't deliberately, consciously go out and write and going to, you know, tweak this, change that. People just see it and, 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 and follow your lead, so to speak. Yeah, and look, you know, I think one of the things that I've really struggled with over my whole career, but especially in the last five years, is I don't like the story being about me. Mm. I don't see that as particularly interesting. But I have come to understand that because I look a certain way and my background is what it is, that it has a positive effect on younger women or younger girls looking at what I'm doing. And I think that's a good thing. So the only reason I think I ever agree to even things like this, because, you know, um, I don't think I'm the most interesting guest out there, but I do think that if somebody who looks like me sees me on a podcast or sees me hosting a podcast or in an interview, it makes it a little bit more real to them that they could do that as well. You know, one of the saddest stories I heard was actually from a really close friend and she told me that um, when she, 10 years ago, she was offered a gig hosting a show on free-to-air TV and she's of Indian origin and she didn't accept it because she didn't see anybody who looked like her on TV. And she just didn't see a path to success. Now, that really saddens me because if there was somebody who was role modelling that behaviour already, she might Mm. have taken that opportunity. And so I just, I think that's a big part of what Mm. I'm trying to do. Shelley, given this is about purpose and vision, do you think uh, companies are recognising the importance of being more purposeful about the teams that they put together, the leadership that they put in place? I think we're getting better. I don't think we're there yet. I think... You know, I I think recently we celebrated um, 30% women on ASX 200 boards. I think that's a great milestone. But given that we're 51% of the population, why aren't we aiming for half? Mm. Mm. You know, and I think the other issue that we 
often tend to forget in mainstream media and in those mainstream campaigns to get gender equity is that we have so much diversity in this country. We have cultural diversity. We have religious diversity. We have uh, such a melting pot of people and population that our management pipelines and our boards and our organisation should be reflecting that. You know, corporate Australia still doesn't reflect 3% of an Indigenous population. And I think that's... We're not there yet. Well, okay, so when, when confronting that statistic and when having this discussion with those that aren't quite there yet, what, what is the best way to open their hearts and minds to this? I think the research is really clear. I think a lot of the big consulting firms have done research that shows that diversity of your workforce and diversity of people around the table making the decisions actually leads to a stronger bottom line. And I think ultimately, when you're running a business, money speaks. And so those numbers are irrefutable. And organisations that have women on their boards, that have female CEOs, that have greater cultural diversity on their teams just perform better. Mm. They perform perform more strongly. So I struggle a little bit with the companies that are the laggards in this space. Like if that doesn't talk to them, I'm just not sure what will. What? Uh, let's explore that a little because once you've seen it, I would say it's a bit like, you know, you can't unsee an elephant when you just, once you've seen it. So, so when certain folks and certain businesses have really got this under control pretty well and they're doing the best that they can to have a nice diverse workplace and they're reaping the rewards, why is it that certain businesses are still almost unable to see this and what's going to change that? I think we just have to continue banging the drum and screaming from the rooftops and I think also showing, um, heralding those stories where there is success. I've worked with so many companies where um, they really get it. You know, it's not a bolt-on. Indigenous engagement isn't one team that just works to get more Indigenous people through the door. It is actually embedded in every team in that organisation. And I think the more success stories we talk about, the more it'll slowly happen. I mean, I think it is happening. It's just happening slowly. Okay, do you think it's going to happen in your lifetime? Oh, look, I hope so. I've got a daughter who's 23 Mm. and has entered the workforce so I hope it happens for her. Yeah. It really saddens me when she comes home and tells me stories that, you know, yeah. are very similar to stories that I had to deal with. <laughs> well, um, one of the things I look at, Shirley, is I, I always look at the examples and, and, and what we're being served. And if you look at our leadership across the board here in Australia at the moment, you know, from a political to corporate level, there's a lot of white males still running the show. And you could argue, an argument could be made for the fact that it's not going too well. Is that enough inspiration for some of these women who have got aspirations to step up and really challenge that? You know, you often hear the argument that there aren't enough women with the qualifications or women don't want those roles. I think it's rubbish. Mm. I think part of the issue here is that we... When we do open the door to women, we keep opening the door to the same women. That's one issue. And so you see the same women getting the same roles again and again and again. And, you know, it becomes becomes the same problem with a different face. And I I think that's an issue. I think um, there are lots of organisations who are trying to support companies in doing this properly. It's just a matter of 
getting the conversations in front of the right organisations. And, we're, you know, I agree with you. From a political perspective and a corporate perspective, we've still got far too many men and not enough women and not enough diversity. I, th- I think, I can't remember what the current numbers are, but the last time I read, I think there was only one CEO who was from a diverse background. I can't, mm. don't hold mm. me to that, but the numbers are low, really low. They are. Um, we could spend hours talking about that, but there's so much to cover with you because you have so many different hats that you wear and so many plates you spin. So I just want to dip into your connection with the not-for-profits and, and, and the partnerships between uh, corporate and um, the not-for-profits. F- first of all, your take on how you think not-for-profits have changed over the years. In, in the past, I always think that they were very good at being a charity, but not very good at being a business. Do you think things are changing there? I think they are. I think there is a greater recognition, a growing recognition, that not-for-profits still need to create profit. That's the first thing. But also they need to be governed um really well, both across financial governance and corporate governance. I think you used to see, and you still see um, in the smaller charities, but perhaps not as much, um, charities that set themselves up with a real aim, but then they lived hand to mouth um, in terms of their cash runway um, and in terms of, uh, they're a bit loosey-goosey, yeah. you know, for want of a better word. I think these days you see not-for-profits that are highly corporatized. They've got very strong corporate and financial governance, they've got corporatized boards, they run like a business, they understand that they have created a profit to put money back into the mission that they're creating and they're also creating new relationships with their corporate partners and also with government. One, they're they're longer term, so there's a longer term outlook which I think is really important for the not-for-profit sector but also they're um, building partnerships that are... um, that are built on um, a true connection to impact and purpose rather than um, the old model where a corporate would give, you know, five charities a year, $5,000, yeah. and then yeah. there'd be no other connection. Yeah. And and what's the advantage of that? Do, do you think that's going to increase as well as companies m- become a little bit more mindful about having a purpose and then pot- potentially going out and finding partners that meet that mindset? No, oh, no doubt, no doubt. I think there are a number of advantages. I think um, having a long-term relationship with a not-for-profit from a corporate or business perspective is incredibly helpful to the not-for-profit. It allows them to budget and plan and um, take on projects that are longer than just a year. So mm. in my previous roles, I always encouraged five-year or more partnerships. Um, I think that's really helpful. I think from a corporate or business perspective, the bottom line is that they have to make money. You know, they're there to make money for their shareholders to, but they're also there to, I think, improve outcomes for community. And if you're a business making a profit off this land, I think you have a, my personal view is I think you have a duty to give back. And what better way than to connect with a not-for-profit in a sector that you're looking to support with a long-term plan to use your workforce and your shareholders in a real participatory way. Mm. So you're not only lending manpower and skills to upskill that not-for-profit and help the work they're doing, but also contributing to their bottom line. I think that has a much more meaningful 
impact and builds a stronger relationship. Mm, I like that. I think that's a really interesting take, take on the old-fashioned way of just throwing money in the bucket and say, there you go, we'll uh, chat to you same time 12 months from now. Um, yes, and, and James, that, that view of throwing money in the bucket does nothing yeah. for shareholders. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're not actually supporting your shareholders by doing that. You're just giving away profit. Yeah. So if you can make that money work harder and create long-term benefits, then, you know, um, shareholders like that. We're all looking at ESG and we're all looking at better ways to create value. That has to be a big part of it. Yeah. Let, let's get your take on what makes a perfect partnership. And I'm talking about from both sides. Let's just say a business goes, well, we care about this. Or our, our, our team, our workers seem to care big time about X. Now let's go and find our perfect partner in this so that we can do what Shirley says and, and build a, a long-term strategic connection. Okay, so they go looking. And then vice versa, Charity mm. Y is looking for a good corporate to you know do some good things with and they try and find someone who is well aligned as well so how would you how would you how would you do that sort of speed date oh look i think you know from a corporate perspective first it's about working out what I think it really comes down to employees and shareholders. So working out what are the areas that resonate with your employee base first. And so, for example, if you are a, let's just pick a bank for want of a better example. If you're a bank and your employees have picked um, the Indigenous community, women and children, Yep. to support for the next whatever number of months or years. You go off looking for organisations that are working in those spaces. As a bank, you work in financial literacy every day. There are communities, Indigenous communities, um, women who are um, victims of domestic violence, children, who all could benefit from learning financial literacy. If you decide to donate, let's pick a number, $20,000 each year to each of those charities, you could create a bigger impact by going into those communities of women or children or Indigenous communities, supporting their financial literacy growth. So picking a time frame over, say, five years where you are going to start increasingly teaching increasingly um, more complex um, financial literacy. So you yeah. start off with how it is to manage money at a children's level, you know, talk to the women about um, managing money so that um, they can actually look after themselves and uh, earn a living and put away aside a, a certain number of dollars each week. You're teaching them and all of that. Um, you're putting money into the community, but you're putting it in into the community in a way that really um, has short-term benefits because you're working on the long-term stuff with the financial literacy. Yeah. As that relationship grows, because you've been in those communities teaching them about financial literacy, if you're a bank, where are they going to go to set up a bank account? Where are they going to go to set up a mortgage or, a, or buy financial products? They're going to come to you because they've grown up with you over the last five years. So the impact of putting that greater investment in is just going to grow. And mm. I've talked to banks out there who, you know, it took them a long time to realise that they just couldn't put money into the community yeah. because what had happened is people would buy financial products or um, interact with the bank in a way that wasn't beneficial to each mm. to each party. Um, and this long-term perspective has long-term benefits. 
So it's just a very brief and yeah. simple example. It's a good example. But the, the, the cynic in me says, well, maybe that's just because the bank wants to look good. They want to share the stories that they're doing good in the community and uh, they're going to get their money back because that those folk in the community will end up having bank accounts and spending money with them. How, how do you yeah. convey that story so that actually that, that really wasn't the reality? You know, I think that um, it's incumbent on the not-for-profit to have their own set of due diligence questions so that they can work out whether the party that they're engaging with is there just to tick a box or they're actually committed to a long-term journey. And with partners that I've worked with in the past, I used to say that it didn't matter where they were on that journey. They could be at the very beginning and have made no inroads um, to working with a charity yet in that space. But if they've got a deep-seated commitment, if they've got a long-term view, if they're looking to bring in their employees to participate in different ways with that program, if they're looking to engage with other organisations in that sector as well and they're taking a whole-of-sector approach, then there are things that you can look for as a not-for-profit that give you indications that the organisation's not there just to tick a box. And in my career, I've said no to as many partnerships as I've said yes to. You're right. Because there are always those organisations who really just want to get their employment numbers of, let's say, Indigenous people up. And so they come to you as an Indigenous organisation to tick that box. And you can you can... You develop a good nose as a not-for-profit <laughs> for that kind of behaviour. Yeah, okay. And um, give, give me an example, one that, that really springs to mind of a partnership that's been fabulous between a not-for-profit and, and a corporate that, that has just married so beautifully that both have ended up, you know, singing from the rooftops. Look, I don't want to mention specific names because I haven't sought in, um, yeah. permission from anybody but there was one in a previous role where I was um, sitting at lunch actually next to the managing director of this global organization that spent a large amount I think their not-for-profit budget was around um, 80 million a year um, and they had no engagement in the indigenous space but they really wanted to and so after a few meetings we um, decided that it would be a really good mix By the end of that year, they had Indigenous interns. They had a very strong partnership with an Indigenous arts organisation and supported um, art shows and uh, art exhibits by Indigenous artists. They were telling the story globally so that other countries in their organisation could see how it was working. Um, And they provided a platform for our organisation to tell our story. So, and, you know, that was... Oh, five years ago, yeah. and they are well on their way. And so, you know, it, it gets back to that point, James. I don't think it matters where you are on the journey. It's yep. about that commitment. Right. And if right. is a not-for-profit, if you can see that commitment at the beginning, yep. if you can recognise that in that organisation, then that's what you're looking for. It's lovely. Uh, it's, a, it's a great example, and hopefully that will continue. It all it obviously depends on the people at the time, and organisations do change, boards change. How do you keep that consistency? How do you keep that arrow, you know, travelling in the same direction? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually, because you're absolutely right. It does depend on the people. And I think, you know, we've all seen programs start and then the next CEO comes in and uh, that CEO doesn't have as much passion in that area and has a different yeah. passion. Yeah. Um, I think it's it gets back to that concept of, it not being a bolt-on. 
Yeah. You know, so what I do is if I go into an organisation that wants me to look at their um, their engagement in the not-for-profit or impact space, impact and purpose space, I'll look at every program they're running, how their teams work, how they engage with those not-for-profits and look at the impact and the success that they're looking for. If you can create a program in that organisation that brings in every part of the organisation, so it's not just one team, but actually every team has, for want of a better word, KPIs yeah. um, to hit regarding that that sector or that charity um, or that impact, then it's not going to just disappear when the next CEO comes yeah. in because it's deeply embedded and that's what you're looking for. You're, that's why the 10000 here and the 5000 there is short-term and can be changed really easily by a new leader, whereas embedded strategies that involve the participation of all your employees um, and shareholders and board are going to have a longevity that you can't get rid of. Mm. When do you think boards maybe it's already happening, are going to truly realise the importance of uh, more purpose connections. Um, by that I mean, you know, a few years ago it was all about dollars and cents and the profits that could be distributed to shareholders. And over the last few months in talking on purpose and vision, there's been, you know, in those conversations, more of a recognition that the purpose and, and values and uh, the vision is equally important. When, when do you think boards will recognise that? monetary value in that? I think it's slowly happening. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that we're getting there. I think over the last few years, companies, businesses are seeing the imperative for them to lead. We're not always getting yeah. it from government anymore. And people are looking to companies to do it differently. Yeah. And so I think it's happening. But, you know, like all of these things, it takes time. Mm. And perhaps it's a generational shift. I think our kids coming onto organisations will assume that that's the norm. Yeah. Because they're so driven by purpose. Yeah. And do you have more hope in some of the younger leaders coming through rather than the older leaders you know, coming to the end? Yeah, I do. Mm. I do. I think the... The generation who's just starting out, I look at my kids and the generation above them, you know, in their 30s in the workforce, and they have different priorities yeah. to the ones we had. Yeah. You know, they they want to be connected to purpose and vision. They don't want to work the 18-hour days. They want to leave at six to see families. They um, And COVID, I think, has accelerated this. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that, you know, that, that's the, a perfect segue into how you think COVID is going to potentially uh, reboot us. Um, and reboot business, reboot the way we do business the, and where we do business indeed. Yeah, look, it's, it's such an interesting question, isn't it? Now, <laughs> yeah. I, think we're I think we're just, we're still discovering it. I'm not sure that we all know the answers, but I've seen, as you know, on the podcast, I interview a number of women talking about what the next decade of leadership looks like. And it's very similar themes coming th through. You know, yeah. it's a... Um, a focus on the fact that men and women share, both partners, whether you're men or women, um, share the parental duties in the household, that you don't have to be, you don't have to have your butt in a seat in an office to be productive, that you could work from anywhere, yeah. that we need to focus on our planet and how we do things. Um, it's not okay anymore to make a profit at the expense of the planet and at the expense of people in other countries. We have to do things with more purpose and vision. And I think all of these things are going to align um, 
I mean, they have done even in the last 18 months. We're seeing CEOs who never wanted their teams to work from home having to just accept the idea. <laughs> no, yeah. and It's nothing like being having something forced upon you to make a decision, you know. It really works. No, and, you yeah. know, last year I remember having conversations with other CEOs where uh, their only aim was to get everybody back in the office. Yeah. And I think they've been really bashed about a little bit because right now in Sydney, of course, we're in the midst of another lockdown. Um, And they've had to just accept that people don't want to work in the office anymore uh, for a whole variety of reasons. There's a talent shortage at the moment. So people who are looking for new jobs get to pick the flexible work conditions and the work conditions they want. Um, I think there's going to be a greater focus on that. Yeah, I think so too. And and I'm going to ask you a question now. This, this is a sort of a personal one. If you were, and uh, and obviously are still a, an inspirational leader regarded as such, if you were running a, a business and you you saw sense in presenting to um, a, a challenging work market because you just can't get enough good people, what would you be presenting as a, we're very different, we have a very different take as a result of COVID, we want to do things differently. What would you be putting in that sort of opening paragraph as your sales pitch? Oh, I love that question. Um, flexible work arrangements. So I don't think you need to be at the office anymore. I think you can work from home or yep. wherever it is you want to work from. Yep. Um, and that comes with all the tools you need to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, providing the laptop, the screens, the whatever you need to mm-hmm. work from home. I think um, diverse diverse workplace policies is a big one. Mm-hmm. So providing... Um, special leave for sorry business for Indigenous employees, providing cultural leaves so that if you don't want the 26th of January off, for example, you could take it in lieu on another day and work that day. If Diwali is important to you, you could have that day off but perhaps not have Christmas Day off. Mm-hmm. Um, so flexible policies like that. I think um, the ability to work for purpose. And so if it's important to you to go and volunteer for an organisation that you care about, to be able to do that for a few days a year. I don't think – I um, interviewed somebody recently who talked about a four-day working week and I think that is an amazing idea. So you get paid for five but you work for four. Um, and the benefit of that is that if you're hitting your productivity guidelines and you can do that in four days, you don't need to work the fifth day anymore. But if you're in a business where commission matters and you want to work the fifth day, that's up to you. Yeah. I love the ability to work when and how you want. So I, for example, um, used to attend my son's trumpet lessons. And so the ability to go and do that but work when the kids were asleep late at night was beneficial to me. But not having to answer an email the minute it lands in your inbox because I think that's, you know, that limits um, – how your behaviour affects yeah. other people. Um, what I do, I think they're, they're the main thing. I love it. Um, yeah. Just around how you work and where you work and bringing, it, it's all about bringing the ability to bring your authentic self to work yes. every day so yes. that the me you see in the workplace is exactly the same version of me that I take home or that I have with friends. I don't have to change who I am because of the conditions you're creating. Yeah. I think that's fabulous. And it's interesting as well in hearing you describe uh, what it would look like now, how much more consideration is being given to the human side of our lives, which I think 
is obvious, but it's incredible how over the last 50 years it's been much more about the profit rather than the sort of the human element. Yeah, and I think, you know, we haven't always been encouraged to bring who we are to work. Yeah. You know, there yeah. were we allowed people to celebrate that on certain days or certain weeks of the year, but we didn't allow them to celebrate that every year. And I think all the studies on diversity show that it's not just diversity of how we look, it's our lived experience, it's where we went to uni or to school, it's where we lived, it's how many countries you grew up in, it's whether you've got children or don't, it's whether you're Indigenous or not, Do you are you multicultural or multi-ethnic, are you LGBTIQ, are you... Um, you know, do you have interests that are very different to other people? All of those different things, who we are matters now because that diversity of experience and life gives us innovative thought and um, innovative answers to really wicked problems mm. that we're facing. Mm. When you talk diversity, do, do you mean everything as in you know I mean everything. everything and and that a lot of people hear the word diversity and will go i don't know male female black white all that sort of stuff but I, i'm i'm talking about you know the diversity that you see that means presumably an 18 year old at the board at the board level or whatever it might be as well as the 50 60 year old yeah look and i think there's a place for all of that i think you know the truth is at the beginning of my career so i was 30 when i was first leading a team and i think the truth is back then I just want to hire people who were like me. Yeah, okay. You know, who went to uni, who um, had a quite a traditional career path, who, who talked like me, who uh, had the same sense of humour, who I identified with. And what I've come to realise is that actually what I want around the table is people who challenge me. Yeah, sure. People who can stand up and say, actually, Cheryl, that idea you've just said is rubbish <laughs> and this is why or this is what I think. And or how do you respond has- then, Shirley? Yeah, look, most of the time I'm pretty good, I think. Okay. But, um, it's taken it's taken a journey. Yeah. And I now, when I'm interviewing for people in my team, actually say to them, I want people who can challenge me around mm. the table. Mm. I don't want you to be scared to tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. So if that's not you, this is probably not the right role. Mm. And that's, and you know, that's not always a great, it's not always great to find yourself challenged by your team. Yeah. But I think it's really important. And I, you know, on one hand, I hate it as much as the next person. I'd love everyone to tell me I was right all the time. But it doesn't happen at home and it shouldn't happen in the workplace. It's what I always say an idea shared or collaborated on is always going to be better than any idea I bring always. to the table. Always. Totally. Um, I, I know we haven't uh, necessarily, uh, you know, potentially put this out as, as, as a topic to discuss, but I really want your take on this word of vision, given the fact that we're on this podcast, Purpose and Vision. And I want your take on companies that sort of do what they do and they have done what they've done for, for many years. But the, uh, the number of times I have conversations with the leadership team now, and I t- I'm blown away by the fact that so few individuals and businesses have a vision. What, 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 why do you think it might be? Well, I think we're still driven by, you know, quarterly results and mm. annual general meetings and REM reports and KP, annual KPIs. And I think that's ultimately the issue. I think the difference for me in between purpose and vision is that vision is long-termism. Exactly. And it's looking, it's, it's looking ahead. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And 
The difference for me is that I don't think you can create a 15-year strategy for a business. Mm. That's rubbish. Mm -hmm. You know, the world changes so quickly now on a month-to-month basis. Yeah, it does. um, Let alone a 15-year basis. So you can't create a strategy for that. But what you can do is create a vision for what you want your company to look like, what you want it to feel like, what you want, how you want your people to feel and what values you want to stand for. And I think that's where the vision comes in. Mm. You know, do you want to create a company that's going to be the place of excellence? Do you want to create a company where it's going to be the employer of choice? Because it's those overarching visions that really can dictate what you do now, what Mm. you do next year and the year after that. You know, if you want to be the employer of choice, then there's certain decisions you will never make. Yeah. I think it's really, I, I find it fabulous when having these conversations with some of these leaders and you put these things in front of them, they go, gosh, that makes so much sense. I always say it's a bit like the scrum down, you know, the scrum that's all pushing in the same direction rather than eight of you pulling in a totally different direction and going nowhere. And and it's incredible how once you can see where the, sorry, I'm mixing all my metaphors, once you can oh, see where and the... Actually, I'm not a rugby person, <laughs> so that metaphor made no sense to me. But <laughs> That's all right. I'll chat to you later. Um, I'll, I'll give you the, the equivalent of being on the bus. You know, the bus or the train that has a destination at the front, it's a lot easier when everyone knows where it's going rather than sort of uh, not having that clue or making it up as you go. But the difference yeah. it makes to business is astonishing when you get that alignment of where, where you're meant to be going. And also, as you just said there, it makes decision-making so much easier, doesn't it? Because you go, well, th- this is where we're going. And if we go off there, it's taking us off course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you're talking about teams and giving people autonomy to do their roles, what you want to do is create, in fact, um, somebody I used to work with told me this, and it's so true. You want to create an environment where they know the outside parameters of what they can't ever do. Yeah. But beyond that, how they do it and how they get there is up to them. Yeah. And so those guidelines or that vision creates that outside parameter and it says this is the direction we're going in. This is the list of um, points against which you'll make every decision so that when they go to spend their time in a day and they're spending 80% of their time on one task, they can say, actually, does this get me to my end goal or is this not where I should be spending my time? It's great. I'll, I'll talk to you about rugby when we, uh, when we end this call, Shirley, but I think you did pretty well there. I'm going to ask you finally just to um, point us in the direction of our next conversation because, as is ever the case on uh, Purpose and Vision, I like the idea of a, a truly inspirational guest being able to hand the baton to the next one. And um, there are no parameters apart from the fact that you kind of know where the podcast is going. So over to you. Um, thank you. Look, I think in looking at your guest list, um, you haven't had an Indigenous guest and we have the great privilege in this country of living on land that always was and always will be Indigenous and Aboriginal, Aboriginal land. And I think that means that it's incumbent on all of us to understand our history and our heritage and understand the great gift of diversity mm-hmm. that we get by being in this country with our First Nations people. So I'm going to recommend uh, Jason Timor and Tiffany Island And they don't know I'm putting them forward, so I'll let them know this afternoon. Um, But they run a a business called Two Point Co. And they help organisations do exactly what I've been talking about today, but in the Indigenous sector. They're both incredible individuals and hopefully you'll get one or both of them. 
That's really good. And thank you. I love the name of the company as well. And and just thinking as well how this is the time, isn't it? You know, when, when so is. much is failing us around us, we need to look to uh, what is staring us in the face. And, you know, whether it's environmental or whatever it might be, you know, the, the solutions can be found, but we just have to tap into those that have got it within them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have, um, if we can tap into who we are and our, you know, 60,000 year plus history and heritage in that country, Mm. we will be formidable. There's no doubt in my mind that, you know, we will lead nations, but we have to understand who we are first. Yeah. And what a waste to not tap into it, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incumbent on all of us. Listen, I've loved this conversation, Shirley, and um, I would love to chat to you again at some point because there's so many other areas of conversation we could have explored. And I know that um, you're not one for talking on a, a personal level because you always think, well, a bit like me. Like, <laughs> it's not exciting. What you, you don't want to know about that. Um, I have really enjoyed just hearing your wisdom and you've shared it with us so beautifully today. And uh, if anyone wants to find you, where's the best place? Uh, via my website, shirleychowdhury.com um, or LinkedIn. And or the Twitter. podcast, and the podcast is also fabulous. The leadership lessons, and um, as you say, some brilliant conversations with women leaders on there. Yeah, incredible, and that's um, run by Women's Agenda. And we've the theme for this series is leading for the next decade, and these women are leading the way. They are showing us how it should be done. So, yeah, it's a really great, I hope it's a really great listen. Oh, well done. Indeed it is. And um, so that's the podcast, Leadership Lessons. Otherwise, um, you can find Shirley, as she just described. Um, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, you, James. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Purpose and Vision. For more details about this podcast, go to the website, purposeandvisionpodcast.com. Or find us on Facebook at Purpose and Vision, on Instagram, Purpose.Vision, and on Twitter at PurposeVision1. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, and perhaps you'd be kind enough to rate the show. This will help others find it. Just go to where you download your podcast and enter a review. Thank you so much.